Well, we pick up our study of 1 Timothy, and we are in the, the fifth chapter, and we are going to finish the fifth chapter today. We're going to work our way from verse 17 through verse 25. Now, as we come into this passage, you'll remember the situation in Ephesus was, was a little bit hairy, to say the least. It was confusing. You had some people espousing things, saying some things that were just blatantly false. And Paul dropped Timothy off in some ways behind enemy lines, and he was, was seeking to set this thing straight. He was ministering to those who were overseers and elders. He was ministering to the congregation. But in a lot of ways, Timothy is communicating to a situation that is very applicable to us even today. You see, as, as, as pastors or elders, or whoever you want to call the, the men that stand in front of churches and seek to give direction and lead, Man, they're, they're visible targets, right? I mean, I'm here at a, at a, I'm higher than you guys are. If you wanted to shoot me, it would be easy. I'm an easy target. That's why I try and stand behind the pulpit. We've looked for a larger one. It's on order. But we're easy targets, not just in the way that you could see that we're visible, but you could easily stir up a, a rumor. You could take something out of context. You could really do a lot of things to make life miserable for a pastor, and then some pastors do things that are miserable, that make life miserable for themselves. Man, they get caught up in sin, they get caught up in any number of things that, that steer them off course, and they make life miserable for the church. Amen? Man, I mean, these guys just, they do things that steer them off course. And so Paul writes, he recognizes that this was true in Ephesus, that God had placed men in charge. He placed men and given them authority, and some of them needed to be removed. Some of them needed to be encouraged, and the church needed to have overall instruction for what to do and who to look out for. And that's what we see here in verses 17 through 25. Paul starts off in verse 17, and he says, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in teaching and preaching. So he opens up this passage, and he says, Look, I've already told you about what an elder's qualifications are in chapter 3, and you'll remember those. And he says, look, as we look at these guys, let those who labor well, let those who rule well be considered worthy of double honor. Now, what does that mean as we look at it? You see, we've just come out of this passage on widows, and Paul's word about the widows, he says, let her who is a widow indeed be worthy of honor. She is worthy of honor if she's indeed a widow. And he gave us the qualifications for what that looks like in the life of a woman. He said, let her be older than 60 years old. Let her have served the elders. Let her have served the church. He describes this, this beautiful picture of a servant woman. And he says that that woman is to be worthy of honor. Now turning to elders, turning to pastors, he said, let them be worthy of double honor. See, this, is, this for me is a little bit uncomfortable. You guys are all looking at me and thinking, how's he going to explain the double honor thing? I am not a person that enjoys uh, attention. I'm not a person that enjoys people you know, gathered around me. I remember growing up as a child at birthday parties, my least favorite part was opening my presents in front of my friends because my internal monologue says, look excited, be happy. Look excited, be happy. I'm thinking it's cheap, it's plastic, it's going to break. Look excited, be happy. And then I start sweating. I'm like, I don't look happy, I look nervous. Don't look nervous. Be excited, be happy. Open the present. 
okay, I can do this. And you open it, and it's great, but all I can think inside my mind is look excited, be happy, that I say, I, I, I gotta go to the bathroom. I'll be right back. And I leave people thinking, he doesn't like this. He doesn't care for this. No, love the gifts. Love it. Hate the attention. Can't stand it. Never liked it. My brother, he likes the attention. Me? No. I don't like the attention. So when I come to this passage, and as I read through this this week, he says, let them be worthy of double honor. I said, or maybe just, you know, an afternoon off. Maybe just let them be considered worthy of, you know, no embarrassing situations, no public recognition. Because, oh, man. That works for me. I like that. But what Paul recognized here, and and something I am still struggling to recognize, is that it takes encouragement to do well in being an elder. Man, it, it, it takes encouragement from the congregation to come alongside one who would be pastor, one who would be elder, and to, and to engage in, in prayer for me. Now, this is strange, right? And I didn't plan this out that I would be working through the latter half of chapter 5 in Minister Appreciation Month. And had I had a do-over in this, we'd be in the Old Testament. We'd be in the imprecatory Psalms. And I would be railing you guys for being awful in Minister Appreciation Month. But, as it would happen, it laid out. Instead, it's this passage where it says, honor. And Paul is talking in two regards. He said, on the one hand, you need to set them up. You need to support them financially. Paul said this in Corinthians when he's talking to the church there, and he tells this to the church in Ephesus. He says, you need to care for, you need to provide financially for those who would be elders. He says, you need to provide, you need to care for them, and you need to respect them. You need to show them you care for them, you need to honor them. And one of the ways you cannot do this is by undermining their authority. And Paul's going to get into that in a second. He says, look, you can't do that because if you're constantly undermining somebody's authority, if you're constantly calling into question the decisions they make and how they do things, you're not considering them worthy of honor. And Paul's not just addressing uh, elders with, with, with egos that need to be stroked. He's not just addressing the situation where they've got these guys that really just need to get a lot of cards in the mail, a lot of encouragements or or Evites that, hey, we're going to have a party and we're going to encourage the heck out of this guy. He's not encouraging that because these guys are necessarily weak. He's encouraging that because what he recognizes is the job they have, they will be torn down over and over and over again. And the body needs to know their role in being an encourager, their role in being one who supports the one that God would use to labor in the church. Now Paul, it's kind of interesting, he starts off, he says, let them who rule well. So what does that look like? Is Paul setting up and saying, look, what you really need is a dictator, right? And the one that that gets in there, and he's a great dictator, and he beats you with a soft rod, and he, he apologizes when he's done beating you. This guy is the one that's worthy of double honor. And all the people in Ephesus said, man, I, what a joke. How awful is that? But the interesting thing about this word here that the ESV renders rule is it's the same word that's used in 3.4, 3.5, and 3.12 for discussions of how deacons should manage their households, of how they should manage their children, and how elders should do the same thing. See, the one who would be elder, he needs to be busy about the work of managing the church. 
Paul's not writing and saying this person needs to be a dictator. He says this person needs to be busy working in the church, managing and overseeing, laying out the trajectory and the direction of where this thing is going to go. And he says, inasmuch as he does this, he's worthy of double honor. And then he pivots and he turns and he says, especially or namely, or such as those who labor diligently in preaching and teaching. You'll remember the substantive difference between deacons and elders is that elders are those who are able to teach, right? And so Paul writes, and he says, elders need to be able to teach, and Paul turns here as he's talking about this double honor, and he says, look, if you don't give yourself to this ministry of the word and in preaching and in exhorting people and then teaching them, showing them how to follow through in those things you call them to, you're not worthy of double honor. See, an elder's primary role is in teaching and preaching. It's exhorting people. It's driving them to live lives that find themselves in conformity to the Word of God and then teaching them, showing them, giving them opportunities for service to learn how to do these things. And he chose to use this word labor. He chose to use this word labor. And it should be labor. It should be laborious. Any preacher who seeks to take shortcuts through downloading sermons or copying somebody else's is is shortcutting the process then you should labor you should give yourself to the constant diligent practice of studying this word so you can spew forth what it has in it and then paul wants to give two points of argument to to buttress or support his position now these are taken if you're taking notes you can write down deuteronomy 25 4 and you can write down luke 10 7 Quoting the Old Testament, Paul says, For Scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out grain. Now, I've never been compared to an ox. I'm not offended, just so we're clear. But Paul says, look, don't muzzle an ox. When they get an ox in there and it would, it would go around and around and it's separating the grain out. And if you put a muzzle on it, then the ox is not able to take in sustenance. It can't take in food as it's engaged in labor. Now, this is the argument Paul is making. Paul doesn't write this and say, look, you guys have elders, they're large, they're bovine-like, they're... He doesn't make that argument. He's not saying, look, you've got these guys that are just thick and, and, and they just kind of grunt, they're going to push through it. And, and don't muzzle them, that's embarrassing for them and it's awkward for you to ask at the pet store. What he's making a reference to is if you treat an ox this well, that you recognize an ox shouldn't be muzzled when it's engaging in labor, then the same thing plays out for those that would be elders in your midst. If you're going to treat a beast of burden like this and be kinded and follow that provision, then you better make sure that you're offering the same provision or better for the man of God that he would send you. Now, quoting Jesus uh, in Luke 10:7, Paul says, look, a laborer deserves his wages. He's making this argument. He says, look, double honor, respect, and payment. And then he turns to it and he says two things. Let me support it. You've got the Old Testament and then you've got Jesus in the New Testament echoing the same thing. Now see, Paul recognized that there would be opportunities for discord. He recognized that, that people would you know, get a burr in their saddle or whatever, and they would just say, look, I, I don't like this guy, and I want to take him down. I don't like this guy, I don't like the decisions that he made, and I want to take him down. Now, 
the church that, that Valerie and I were married in, there was one particular deacon that got it said in his mind that he did not like the pastor. She didn't care for him. In his mind, the pastor had offended his son-in-law, had offended this deacon's son-in-law, so he said it in his mind that he was going to do whatever it took to take this guy down. He didn't care what happened to the church. He didn't care what happened to this pastor. He set his mind on taking him down. And what should have been an easy thing to handle, he ended up splitting this church, this church of, of a couple thousand people, got down to about 500 they couldn't leave the lights on. I mean, it got terrible. This guy ended up leaving the church. Now, what Paul is addressing here is a way around that. He says, and he's quoting Deuteronomy 19.15, he says, Don't admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. You see, the work of, of the congregation, the work of the body, isn't to sit there and take notes and to look at Justin or to look at Ed or to look at Jay or to look at me or to look at anybody on staff and, and say, that's right, he wore jeans on Sunday. I saw him walk past the alcohol line at Walmart and he didn't walk fast enough. I saw him driving on 34 the other day and that light might have been yellow in his mind, but buddy, it was red. I'm going to call as many deacons as I can. We're going to call Sheriff Meeks, and we're going to get this thing taken care of because he is violating things that I care about. And see, that's not what Paul is setting up, but what Paul is recognizing is that there is a genuine time when elders, when pastors sin. But he said, look, just because somebody comes in and they offer a complaint, or just because somebody comes in and they're voicing these things, you should not accept it unless they have actionable evidence. And that evidence is supported by more than one person. He says two or three. Now this is something so vitally important. Because so many churches are split based upon one person getting angry. And that one person gets angry and they look for somebody that, that's having a bad day and they walk up and they say, how's your day? And the person says, bad. And they say, okay, well, let me, let me help you direct that anger on somebody else. See, we need, the church needs to be looking out. They need to be safeguarding. They need to be caring for and protecting the reputation of the pastor, of the elder. Paul recognizes that, that authority... You call it power if you want. That it has a tendency to corrupt. I mean, you can see this in the business world. Sadly, you can see it in churches too. Church Valerie and I were members of right before we left to go overseas. And now I'm realizing this is the second story about a church we were members of. And, but we didn't have anything to do with either of these. <laughs> Promise. And so this, this pastor got it in his mind that he deserved favor that he deserved this, this piece of property, and so he engaged in, in what was this underhanded deal, and he ended up losing his pastorate. All because of greed, all because he wanted something. Has a tremendous ministry, and he scuttled it. See, it happened in Ephesus, it happens today. And so Paul writes, and he says, As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all. I mean, it's just as grand and glorious as it is to be recognized and honored and to be worthy of double honor. It is 
terrified to realize that Paul isn't making a reference here to, hey, look, what you need to do is assemble the other elders together and just call the person out and say, let me slap you on the hand and you just stop doing it. Paul says instead, he says, get this elder, get this man in front of the entire body. This person who they would have gone to over and over again and said, look, you need to stop this. You need to quit engaging in this behavior. You need to repent. You need to be restored. But the way Paul paints it here is they persist in sin. They won't give it up. They found what they like and they don't see the harm in it and they refuse to relent in their progress and they're doing damage to the body. So Paul says what you need to do for that person is get them in front of the entire assembly. Get them in front of the entire church and rebuke them. No, that doesn't sound very loving. That doesn't sound very encouraging. That doesn't feel doubly honoring. But you know why he wants us to do that? Because God cares so much for the integrity of the body. And he realizes that that whether it is sin in an individual member or it is sin in the life of an elder, that it is cancer to the body. And just as we have to address sin in individual members and just as we do church discipline as a body for the health of our body, so too that discipline applies to those who would be elders. Paul says, look, you get the guy, he's persisting in sin, he won't relent. You get him in front of the whole body, in front of the presence of all, and you rebuke him. You call him on his sin. You don't seek to just kind of dismiss this, to let it go, to pass it over. But you get that joker up in front of everybody. And you tell them all they need to know to know what he's done. And you call them to repent. And this is how this works. Paul says when you do that, when you engage in this process of pulling this elder up in front of everybody, and when you rebuke them publicly, the rest of the elders see this, and they're terrified. See, when you realize there is a consequence for action, it tends to change the way you engage in behavior. See, for me, I reflect upon this man who lost his ministry because of greed. And so I stiff arm, I try and keep myself away from these things. I look at those who lose their ministry over addictions to pornography or extramarital affairs, and I set safeguards to make sure these things do not take root in my life. When you see somebody else rebuked, and maybe this is because I was a younger brother, my brother was six years older than me, and I saw over and over again him get older and the spankings get louder, him get bigger and the spankings get more intense. And luckily, I learned through the mistakes of others. And that's what Paul's writing to here. He says, so that the rest may stand in fear. We need to take seriously that that God's church is more important than me. It's more important than any single member. And he takes with great care in the preservation of his body and in maintaining a pure bride. Turning to this idea of, of, of appointing elders... Paul writes him in in verse 21, he says, In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. And he really spills that out in verses 24 and 25. And so Paul writes and he says, look, 
you're, there's going to come a time, and Timothy was already in it in some ways because he was speaking to the removal of certain elders. There's going to come a time that he was going to have to remove an elder, and they were going to have to call others. They were going to have to appoint others. And Paul writes him, and he says, look, this is where I'm grandstanding from. He says, Timothy, not to put any pressure on you, but this is where this is coming from. I've got God here, I've got Jesus here, I've got the elect angels looking down. And, and, and that's the audience that, that is watching this as you keep these rules, as you keep these instructions. Now, if that isn't a, a, uh, an important audience to keep honest, to, to move forward correctly in front of, I don't know what is, right? And he tells him, he says, you need to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. Paul effectively tells Timothy, look, you've been in Ephesus for a while. Surely you've come across certain men that in your mind you think this guy would be a great elder. This guy would be a great deacon. This guy would be a great uh, person to help lead out in this church. And Timothy is creating divisions. He's creating assignments. And he's, he's moving people into categories of fit for service, unfit for service. But what Paul wants him to know is that he should not be prejudging these people. He should not be showing partiality to those he necessarily likes to spend more time with for any reason. And so he tells him in verse 22, Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. If you remember, he's told Timothy this over and over again. And the picture we see is he tells Timothy, Timothy, engage sin with the gospel, but keep yourself unstained from it. And he comes here, he says, Timothy, as you go through the process, and I've already told you, don't prejudge, don't show partiality, don't be hasty to lay on hands. I mean, recognize this. Ephesus has a hole in their leadership. The church in Ephesus is, is missing men in these roles. Other people are having to pick up and do the things, and so as they have more than one elder, other guys, the responsibility is falling to them. And so Timothy is feeling some pressure to move into this and find somebody to fill the role. And we see churches do this over and over again. When the, they no longer have a pastor, they put together a search team in Baptist Life, and they come together, and their role is to fill the vacancy. I mean, that's 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 boiling it down to kind of its basis elements, but their role is to fill the vacancy. And the question they get asked over and over again is, did you find anybody yet? Because I got a cousin, and uh, I mean, he's getting out of jail next month, and they've got the certification course now, and he is, I mean, he is. If you can't find anybody else, he's okay. And so you can imagine the, the pressure on Timothy to appoint somebody, the pressure on Timothy to fill this role. And Paul tells me, he says, look, don't prejudge somebody. Don't show partiality. Don't be hasty. Timothy, this is important work. You need to take your time. You need to be slow. Because if you are hasty, if you move through this too fast, you could be, in, you could be joining yourself to the sins of others. Now, what does that look like? Well, we're going to have to wait for verse 24 to find out. Because Paul, for whatever reason, has this really weird parenthetical thought in verse 23. Now, if, if I'm laying this out and I'm moving verses around wherever I want it, I put 23 in a footnote, right? I write papers uh, because I'm a student, doctoral student, and, and so I write papers all the time. And, and, and information that's interesting but not driving to the main point of an argument 
is found in a footnote. After almost a decade of education, I figured that out. Paul, if he had a footnote, he would have put this in a footnote. Okay? So let's just know that, and then we'll come back and we'll pick it up and we'll act like it was a good footnote. Paul says in verse 23 to Timothy, he says, Timothy, no longer drink water only, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. Right? So Paul comes into this situation. He says, look, Timothy, you're nervous. You've got a nervous stomach. It would be fixed if you drink a little wine. Now, why would he offer this advice to Timothy? You'll remember that, that those who were in Ephesus were giving advice and giving wisdom and saying, look, don't eat certain things, don't get married, and they were big on the don'ts of life. And Timothy's argument against that was, look, God made everything. Everything comes from God, and as everything comes from God, everything is good. Timothy was drinking nothing but water. Nothing but water. He had a strict water-only liquid diet, and he was doing that to the detriment of his own health. So Paul comes in, he writes to me, he says, what I want you to recognize is that what you are doing is, is, man, it's not appropriate. What you're doing isn't called for. Paul recognized that Timothy had given up the drinking of wine because possibly some of the elders were drunkards. Some of the elders were alcoholics. And that's probably why Paul writes in the qualifications for an elder and the qualifications for a deacon that they shouldn't be alcoholics. He said they shouldn't be drunkards. Timothy says, look, I'll fix this. I just won't drink any wine. And so he's drinking water, likely not the best water, and he's drinking it all the time. And because of his stomach, because of his frequent ailments, Paul writes to him and says, you should incorporate a little wine. Now, Baptists come to this verse and they say, look, I know Jesus made water into wine, and I know uh, Paul told Timothy here to do wine, but really it was the Welch's family found in the first century, and they had this great product, and that's what he was deriving, deriving him to. And you can really see that because if you look closely at the Greek, there's a little trademark that says Welch's Incorporated. <clears throat> and I've looked at the Greek text, and I just I don't see the Welch's thing, but maybe that's because I'm, I'm not wearing glasses. Um, but when Paul writes here, and I'll just hit this quickly, when Paul writes here and says, look, use wine, he uses the word for wine, and it is fermented juice that comes from grapes, right? If you drink too much of it, you're going to get drunk, and that's why Paul tells him, don't be a drunkard. If he wanted to write him and say, don't be addicted to Welch's or don't be addicted, addicted to grape juice, he would have said that. Instead, he said, elders, don't be drunkards. Deacons, don't be drunkards. This is wine. If you drink too much, you'll get drunk. Clear? Nobody wants to say clear. Amen? <laughs> Baptist, no one says clear. Everybody says amen. Moving out of that, footnote accomplished. He comes back into 24. He's told him, he says, look, don't be hasty in doing these things. And this is why. Because the sins of some people are conspicuous going before them to judgment. But the sins of others appear later. He says, look, Timothy, as you look around and, and you meet men in Ephesus, you're going to come to this guy and you're going to recognize that he is an adulterer. I mean, everybody in the community knows about it. Everybody knows him to be a liar or dishonest. And that is just totally obvious. And so you're not going to pick him. You're going to move to somebody else. But Timothy, if you're hasty at laying on of hands, if you see somebody and you come up to them and say, man, sir, you're a great person. I care for you. I recognize you care for Jesus. And, 
you know, and kind of back to the vacancy, we've got this team, and they've appointed me to appoint you. If you don't have anything doing, you know, for the next five or six years, I'd like to, I'd like to call you to be an elder here. When you move through this process quickly, you get somebody in the job, you get somebody moving into it, and then later on you find out that they are somebody who's given to pride, somebody who's given to arrogance, somebody who all the secrets of their heart report them to be so incredibly distant from Jesus. But they didn't have any conspicuousness. They didn't have any obvious heresy in their life. I mean, this is what Timothy needs to care for. This is what he needs to look out for. It's not those things that are conspicuous, because any idiot can pick up on that. But it's these things that are are hidden. It's these things which are safeguarded by the person perpetrating them. They need to be moving for careful inspection. You cannot do that quickly. You cannot do that quickly. Now, going to the flip side of it, Paul tells him, he says, look, so also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. Paul writes and says, look, you recognize that you don't want to call the adulterating liar, but there are people out there hiding sins. But just as well, you don't want to call the person who you recognize that's done something amazing, something fantastic in our terms. You look at this person's resume and you say, wow, they've accomplished so much. They've done so many amazing things. Man, when I meet this person, I can instantly tell he loves his wife, his wife loves him, his kids are honor roll students, and, and, and surely to surpass Mother Teresa in good deeds. And, and, and you see the person do all these things, and you think, this is the obvious candidate. This is the person we need. Paul tells him, he says, look, you're looking at the person who at the very core of who they are, they're shaped, they're molded, they're motivated. By who Jesus is. You want to get to know the person. You want to make sure that beyond the conspicuous sins, they don't have something that's hidden in their heart. You want to look for the person who at the very core of who they are, they're motivated by a love of Jesus. You see, as we walk through this passage, the governing thing of the whole thing is honor that is met out on those who God has called. See, the word for the church is we glorify God in honoring those God has called. And we honor God in rebuking them. We honor God in calling them. And we honor God by giving honor to those he has called. Let me pray for us.